Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, a Vision for You speakers meeting. My name is Leah, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater and your moderator for this morning. Today is Sunday, February 3rd, 2013. The share code for Friday's meeting, Friday, February 1st, is 3804. OA Preamble. Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who, through shared experience, strength, and hope, are recovering from compulsive overeating. We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. There are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting through our own contributions, neither soliciting nor accepting outside donations. OA is not affiliated with any public or private organization political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine, we take no position on outside issues. This meeting's primary purpose is to abstain, to recover from compulsive overeating, and to carry this message of recovery to those who still suffer. Our sole purpose, OA's fifth tradition states, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. At a Vision for You Big Book study, our message is that people who suffer from compulsive overeating can recover through abstinence and the practice of the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. I will now call on Deb W. to read the 12 steps. Good morning, Leah. Good morning, Vision for You. 12 steps. One, we admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people whenever, wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Twelve, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to other compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Thank you. I will now call on Melanie to read the Twelve Traditions. Good morning, Melanie here, um, Recovered Compulsive Overeater. The 12 Traditions. One, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon OA unity. Two, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. Four, Each group should be autonomous, except in matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Six, an OA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise, 
less problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, OA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Ten, Overeaters Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues, hence the OA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. Eleven, our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, films, television, and other public media of communication. Twelve, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all these traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. Pass. Thank you. Our whole journey through the steps takes us to step 12. Step 12 says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Here this morning to carry this message of recovery and to share her experience, strength, and hope with us is Michelle H. from Missouri. Welcome to the line, Michelle. Good morning. Hi, Leah. Hi, everyone on Vision for You. It's so good to be here. Um, thank you, Leah, and all who um, are behind the scenes helping um, each morning to make this meeting possible. It's certainly a place where I come every day, and it's been very instrumental in my recovery. And um, it just is a privilege and an honor to be here to share with you today. Um, my name is Michelle H. I live in Missouri. Uh, this, I'm a recovered compulsive overeater um, by the grace of God. This morning I woke up to uh, look outside and see a beautiful dusting of snow just covering and blanketing the, you know, the dark winter landscape. And it just um, is so refreshing, so beautiful. And I'm um, glad I'm inside, but um, it's beautiful and just the dusting out there. Um, I'm happy um, to be able to share my story with you all today. Um, like I said, it's a privilege and an honor, and it reminds me of the step three prayer, um, that today um, God is going to be with me as um, he tells my, helps me to tell my story of how um, God removed my difficulties, um, and it's his victory over them that I hope to bear witness to, um, to myself, um, you know, just you know, thanking God and to all of you um, how I, I may be of help, how God might use me. Um, to show you his power, his love, and his way of life. And um, I hope to continue to, to do that and stay on this journey through practicing these 12 steps. So um, with that said, um, I also want to say that you might hear some papers rustling um, because last night when I sat down with my higher power, I needed to put my thoughts on paper. Um, I get distracted easily, and I just wanted to have um, something to keep me on track. So I'm going to tell you about myself. I'm going to tell you... Um, about how my life became unmanageable um, in this disease of compulsive overeating and um, how, it, you know, I came to find that it was unmanageable before I worked um, these 12 steps as outlined in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And then I'm going to share with you how I became recovered, um, which I attribute directly to um, following these 12 suggested steps. 
um, under the guidance of a recovered sponsor and um, God's helping hand um, there throughout. Um, I'm a visual learner, and so I visualize myself with God holding one of my hands and then the loving fellowship holding the other as, um, you know, I walk that same path that those first 100 recovered people um, wrote about in the big book. And um, so I'm going to start by telling you a little bit about myself. As I said, you know, I'm, I'm currently residing in St. Louis, Missouri, just outside um, the county limits. And I was born and raised there. So I'm a Midwest girl, um, the oldest of four girls. Neither of my parents um, nor my sisters were compulsive overeaters. Um, I was um, the oldest, and I was given a lot of responsibility um, at a young age. And um, I welcomed that responsibility as I look back um, over those young years of my life um, because I learned that when I was given that added responsibility, um, it made me feel special. It made me feel important. I felt like a grown-up. Uh, it seemed like I always wanted to be with the grown-ups, be with the adults, not with um, people my own age. Uh, I always gravitated to um, even my friends were several years older. So I carried the responsibility often um, too far when it came to my sisters as I look back. Um, I liked being in charge, and often um, I would misuse my power to get my way, uh, to keep the house in order. So um, basically so that I wouldn't get in trouble from my mother. My mother um, liked peace, order. She um, wanted everything to go smoothly, perfectly. Um, and I, too, learned um, that that was the way I wanted to live, um, with perfection, um, not, um, not make any waves, not um, cause any problems. Um, life would be less painful that way. And I wanted my mother's approval. And in order to get her approval, um, I needed to get my sisters um, and keep them in order. And um, they were young. You know, I was like probably 10, 11, you know, when my mom would start putting me in charge not really old enough to know, um, and she was my model, and so um, as a model, when things didn't go right, she would yell and scream. So when my sisters weren't doing what I thought they needed to do in order to not get in trouble and keep things in order, I would yell and scream. And um, so at an early age, I learned to manipulate or try to manipulate others to get the outcomes, um, which I believed would prevent me from the pain of disapproval from my mother. And my sisters learned something, too. They learned that if they misbehaved, I'd be the one getting in trouble and not them. So um, at an early age, we learned this dance of um, let's see who could get the other person in trouble, um, all in the name of getting um, our mother's approval. Now, when it came to food, I found at an early age that food relaxed me. Um, it relieved my fears and tensions, especially around the stressors from my home environment. Um, looking back at my childhood pictures, I was not overweight till I was about 11 or 12 years old. And by that age, it seemed to me that it was um, that my three sisters were against me wherever I was left, whenever I was left in charge. And it wasn't just the babysitting of my sisters. It was also due to um, my mother comparing um, our, my sisters, um, she compared us each to the other. And I have a sister that who, who is 13 months younger than me, and I've often re heard that referred to as Irish twins. We were very close in age, um, but very different. Um, I um, was the one who was given 
you know, the charge of being responsible. And even though she was 13 months younger than me, um, my sister took on the role of someone who was who could not be responsible. She needed someone to take care of her. And so I was the one um, who would do that. Um, even though I was a year older, um, some, for some reason, I was the one who was to cook her breakfast. I was the one who was to draw her bath water. I was, you know, I was to help her get dressed. Um, and soon I, I began to resent that um, because um, I was given more and more responsibility and she was, she was given less. So I can look back to see today and see why we each resented the other. Um, my mom would address us by saying, well, why can't you be more like your sister? She would say that to each of us. And so I was held up as an example to her, and she was held up as an example to me. And so the message I think we both got was that, especially me, speak for myself, is that um, I was lacking, and I was not okay the way that I was. And so uh, my sister and I were especially in constant conflict. Um, I remember... um, I truly remember resenting her, um, and even when we were in school, I would pretend that she wasn't my sister. Um, in gym class, we'd have to have our name, our last names embroidered on um, our wonderful gym suits, and, um, you know, we looked different. I had, uh, I was taller, larger, brown hair. She was shorter, thinner, blonde hair, and they noticed our last names, and, and we would laugh and say, um, you yeah, know, we didn't really know. No, we weren't sisters. Um, maybe we were cousins, but we, you know, we really didn't, um, we carried it pretty far. And, um, so, um, one of the things that I resented a lot was that she could eat whatever she wanted without gaining any weight. And, um, I, you know, I also resented the fact that my mother made me, you know, do everything for her, like I had already said, but I really resented the fact that she was, she was, um, thin and she could eat whatever she wanted and she soon began to um, taught taught me about that. You know, we would look for those little defects in each other's and those little buttons to push to get on um, to get the other person's goat. And so she thought she was painfully thin. Um, would even send away in magazines for products called Weight On, as I was struggling to lose weight. And she would she would, I remember her saying, "Well, I'd rather be fat than skinny, because you could always lose the weight." And I thought. Oh my gosh! I would I would give anything to be skinny. I would be give anything to be like you and eat all the food that you eat and not gain weight. I thought you are you know you're out of your mind to think that. And um, so it, as the resentment grew, I I tried to rebel against doing for my sister. And you know, I started realizing, wait a minute, she's just a year younger, or you know she's capable. Um, but that rebellion only brought me um, the pain of my mother's anger. And then, again, my sister's delight in seeing um, me reprimanded. She knew that she she could um, just manipulate my mom to get her to get me to do things because of my mom's disapproval. So I didn't like that. I didn't like my mom's anger. I didn't like her wrath and yelling at me and, and the physical violence that sometimes would, would um, result. So I felt like I was... Um, being untreated unfairly, no one's listening to me or seeing the injustice of the situation. And um, it, it, the game continued. My sister would play, and I, I would always end up losing at her game. So, um, you know, after a period of time, I just decided um, I might as well just be quiet. I might as well just give up. And I turned to food. I learned that food would ease my anger. I particularly like crunchy food, so I could really chomp down my anger and that would just really, you know, bring um, some ease and comfort when I would do that. And um, 
I, I realized that my mom could control a lot of what I did, but she could not control my eating, even though she, even though she tried. Um, I now had my own game of sneaking and getting food when my mom would tell me no, because um, I'd ask for permission to eat something. Um, you know, she would love it when my sister, who was so thin, would ask, you know, for food. And um, so I, I would play into that, oh, Mom, I'm hungry, you know, I need something to eat. And I was looking for her permission. Well, after a while with the weight gain, um, out of her concern, I guess, she she said, well, no, no, you've had enough. You're eating too much. And um, so I, I got very good at sneaking food. Uh, my bedroom was um, uh, con- uh, was converted from a dining room into a bedroom, so it was right next to the kitchen. It was the perfect location for a compulsive overeater. And the pantry was very close and um, to my door, the pantry for where the food was kept. So um, when my mom would be distracted out of the kitchen, um, I could sneak into the pantry very carefully opening the door so she wouldn't hear the click and um, take food and stash it in my room. And um, thought, you know, this was one way I had control. There was one thing that she couldn't tell me what to do, um, I believed. And so that, that it really became a game to me. Um, to see how much um, food I could get without her realizing that, even though it was showing up on my body. Um, Other things I would do is I'd volunteer to help clean up in the kitchen, and I just couldn't wait till everybody was out of the kitchen because my sisters, you know, by now I've got three sisters growing up, and um, they just were picky eaters. There was all kinds of food left on their plates, so um, it was a perfect setting for me. I was getting my mom's approval because I was cleaning up the kitchen. She loved, you know, messes to be cleaned up. I had all this extra food, and um, and and then I would um, everybody would be out of the kitchen because nobody wanted to help. Um, they would scatter my sisters, so then it was a perfect opportunity for me to hide some more food. And so, like I said, I was gaining weight. I was getting um, uh, fatter um, and larger than my sisters, and then that gave more ripe. Um, opportunity for you know my sisters, my one sister, she would start calling me names, and um, you know she she knew that would get to me, but um, I I continued to overeat and turn to food for solace. It was the only comfort I could find in my home. I started feeling more isolated from the rest of my sisters who followed the lead of of my one sister. Um, so at school, you know, I turned to school. Home was not a place where. Um, I was getting much approval except if I was being responsible or cleaning or doing something um, in my eyes that made my mother happy. So um, at school, then I started identifying with the teacher. You know, I started seeking their approval. And um, so, you know, studying was was good outlet for me because I was isolated anyway in my room. My sisters, um, I felt, were against me and siding with my other sister in this game I was playing with her. And um, so it was perfect study, you know. What else did I have to do with my time in isolation? Eat and read, eat and read. And so um, I began to excel in academics, and I would get a pr- you know approval and praise, um, good grades. Well, that I thought that was working for me. And um, until, you know, I continued with my eating career, and by 10th grade I was um, uh, well over 150 pounds, and at that time I'm, I'm only about five, two and a half now, so I think I was five one, five two at that time. Um, finally, uh, the most humiliating day came when I was no longer able to wear the largest dress size that in the store. Now, if there was other stores where you could get larger dress sizes or clothing sizes, I didn't know about them, you know, because I didn't have any overweight people in my family, and um, 
so that that was it. That was going to be the end of the line for me. What was I going to do? And I remember my dad saying, you know, if you don't stop eating, you're going to be into a size 18. And, you know, that's where I drew the line. Never, you know, never would I be that big. And that day came when I was in the store and I couldn't get a size 18 dress zipped. And I remember the panic. And I remember, you know, just how horrible I felt. And it was then that I decided, well, I guess I need to lose weight. I didn't know how. Um, you know, nobody in my family had a problem with weight. They're, you know, I couldn't really look to them. Besides, they, they made fun of me. And it was just like, well, you know, just lose the weight. You know, it seems like it should be easy. My sister said it's easier than gaining weight, but I didn't know how. And um, so I thought, well, I guess I have to do this on my own. There was never any offering to go to a doctor or a counselor. I hear people tell their story, and I thought, gee, I, I, I always wish that someone would have said, hey, Michelle, let me let me help you. Um, but I, I never asked for help either. Um, I was afraid. I was afraid of, um, you know, people laughing at me or, um, you know, not, there wouldn't be any help. What if they said there is no help, just, just quit eating? And I couldn't. Um, so I remember my first self-help book. You know, I think I paid 50 cents or a dollar for it. I can't remember, but it was at the grocery store. And, um, oh, my gosh, that little book, I read it every single day from cover to cover. It was very small. But, it, you know, it was talking about counting calories and doing had little exercises in the back. It's like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. But I still didn't know what to do, um, you know, because I only had the foods available that were in my house. And, and, you know, they were foods like peanut butter and jelly, bread, crackers, soup, those kinds of things. And um, I certainly wasn't able to, you know, parents weren't able to afford to let me buy my lunch at school. We had to take our lunches. So I came up with my own plan. And so my first diet consisted of I realized that when I would eat my cereal in the morning, I would be hungry. So I didn't like the hunger. So, okay, I'll just skip breakfast. That's what I'll do. I'll just, you know, skip it. I won't have to deal with the hunger pains. And um, I carried a peanut butter and jelly sandwich to school every day. I had a quarter. I remember that quarter bought me a one of those little cartons of milk and a bread pretzel. Well, that's what I had for lunch. And then I would come home and I would have one helping of whatever was being served for um, for dinner. And then there would be nothing more to eat. And I remember that, that I really didn't get help from my family. In fact, they would have their snacks. They saw what I was trying to do. Um, knew I couldn't ask them for help because they would just laugh at me more. And so when they would be eating their snacks, they would just taunt at me. And I, I remember it was even painful because my dad would pop this big bowl of popcorn every night. And um, I know I couldn't get started on that. And my rule was nothing to eat after dinner. That was my rule. And so lo and behold, by the end of 10th grade, I had lost 25 pounds. I was down to 125 pounds. And, you know, I saw that, you know, life at home was just not that good. Life at, at school was pretty good. I got pr approval and praise there. So my plan was to save every penny that I that I made, which I made money for, by babysitting, it was all to go into an account to get out of my house, to go away to school, to go away to college. That's where I would find my peace and my happiness, and um, life would be good there. So throughout college, and um, I met my husband, uh, my future husband in college, and my early marriage years, I, I learned to restrict food. I didn't realize that I had restricted food so much um, until I was looking back over my eating history, um, but I would, um, and um, I had, now I had a bookcase of self-help books, you know, I started with that little book in the grocery store, and now there was more and more out there, um, I was looking for the answer, because I still had to restrict food, I couldn't eat like everybody else, 
I wanted to, but I couldn't. I knew what would happen. And so I'd be what on whatever diet was on the cover of the latest magazine. And I, I tried them all, hoping to find the diet that would let you eat whatever you wanted without gaining weight. That's what I was looking for. That's why I had so many self-help books. I knew there was a secret out there. I knew that skinny people knew this secret and that one day they would write the book and they would let that secret out and I would find it. And um, when I'd fail on diets, I'd rationalize that, um, well, it worked for others but not for me, so something must be wrong with me. I just haven't found out what's quite wrong with me yet. And um, so that's why I kept searching. And that set the stage for the low-carb diets. Um, that, that was a wonderful revelation. Yet yeah, revelation to me, yes, there is something wrong with you, Michelle. You just can't have um, carbohydrates. That's what it is. Um, and so that's, you know, I, I really liked that concept because, you know, in the pages of those books that talked about um, this low-carb diet, it said you could eat whatever you wanted from this column of food. Just don't eat the carbohydrates, and you're going to lose weight. And I thought, that's it. That's it. I found it. And um, so there there I went. You know, it's like, okay, I found, I found the plan. And then... Um, you know, I found it wasn't all that easy to stay with these foods because I, I was neglecting carbohydrates. I, I later found out I need carbohydrates. They're fuel for my body. But I had this I'll show you attitude is what I call it that I learned um, when I was growing up. I just had to I'll show you um, against my mother. Um, you know, I'll, I'll get whatever food I, I, I need and want. And I'll show you, I'll find the, the perfect diet for me. So the I'll show you attitude is what um, guided my life. And so um, for for years, my weight would yo-yo up and down because I just knew I'd just go back on this low-carb diet. I couldn't stay with it for long. And that would get me back to where um, I felt okay about myself again for a period of time. So it was this I'll show you attitude um, that I really relied upon. And so... Um, then my, I had two pregnancies, and I gained 60 pounds with each one. And I, I, I didn't um, – I loved being pregnant because then I could, quote-unquote, legally eat for two. You know, I was so worried what other people were thinking about my eating that I would just binge at night. I didn't want you to, to know that I was eating so much food because I wanted you to feel sorry for me and say things like, oh, you poor dear, you know, look how little you're eating at lunch and dinner when, when I go out with, with family and friends. Oh, it must be your metabolism. You just you eat so little, you know. Yes, yes. Um, please, please tell me that's it's my metabolism, or tell me I can't eat carbohydrates. Just tell me that's what it is. That's what I wanted to know. And um, so I did that for for decades. And um, I, I, yeah, my rationalization. I got a slow metabolism. Um, I didn't want to admit to how much food I was eating at night. Um, it was too too shameful to admit that to anyone because I just all I wanted was just to be a normal eater. I wanted to be like the skinny person, uh, like my sister, who I thought had you know life by the tail and life was good and life was happy and and um, joyous and free. And and that, the reason that it wasn't for me was because I was overweight and I was fat. So I did. I tried to hide all the the quantities that of food that I ate, and I tried to control portions when I could. And, um, you know, I'm reminded of that, you know, page in, in um, the big book that, you know, talks about, um, you know, men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. Well, I like the, the effect produced by food. 
and the, the sensation is so elusive that while they admit it's injurious, um, they cannot, after a time, differentiate the true from the false. And so, you know, I was I was rationalizing um, my my portions amount. You know, it was my slow metabolism and and lying and self deceiving. You know, I'm really not eating all that much. See, look how little I'm eating during the day, um, not admitting to what I was really consuming. So, um, um, you know. Although I, you know, I, I reached a point in my life, you know, where things were, it was not just about the food then; it was about my family life, and I, I swore that I would never be like my mom. I would never get angry, um, you know. I would never treat my children the way my mom treated me, and then there I was, there I was, yelling at my children, getting angry just for them being children, yelling and screaming at them, and um, so I bought some more self-help books. This time it was on parenting and disciplining. You know, I, I, I would find a way. I would find the way. Um, so I, I wanted to have a close family and a loving family, and unlike the family um, which I was um, born, it seemed. You know, it seemed the harder, and you know, the harder I tried to get everyone to get along, the more the disharmony. Um, and you know, that brings me to page fifty-two in the big book. And you know, it reminds me of the fact that. It says, we were having trouble with personal relationships. We couldn't control our emotional natures. Um, we were prey to misery and depression. We, it says, we couldn't make a living. We had a feeling of uselessness and full of fear. I was so full of fear I was going to be just like my mom, the person I didn't want to be. We were unhappy. We couldn't seem to be of real help to other people. And um, that's exactly what I was feeling at this point. And I, you know, I was continuing to eat more and more food. And um, I was, and I was getting more and more upset with my weight gain, and my my efforts to restrict my food uh, were now failing. Um, and so, where was my "I'll show you" attitude? Um, you know, where was that? That had always worked for me before, and now that too um, was failing me. And <clears throat> page six, you know, in Bill's story, it says the remorse, horror, and hopelessness of the next morning are unforgettable. The courage to do battle was not there. And, you know, I had lost my I'll show you attitude. I couldn't do battle anymore. And so I had tried OA, you know, this is probably, now we're into the, you know, my my fifth deck, you know, I guess I'm in my 50s now. And when I was in my 40s, I had tried OA. I had um, gone from 1996 to 1997. And that time I was uh, restricting food, and my weight was at a low end. You know, I was in like 125 to 130. And so, you know, I, I didn't, I was really not working a program. I was just restricting my food and, as they say, you know, dieting with a support group. And, um, you know, what resonated for me is on page 30 at the very top, you know, the chapter more about alcoholism, most of us have been unwilling to admit we were real alcoholics, and I was certainly unwilling to admit that I was a real compulsive overeater at that time. And um, I'm, I look back at a picture in 1999, just two years after I left Overeaters Anonymous, and my weight was climbing, and I, I was totally, I'd lost control, oh, totally lost control over my eating, and I know I was, you know, 150, 160 um, probably 170 if I would really um, get myself on the scale, which I didn't want to do. And so I thought, well, I just need a little bit of time. I just need a little bit of time, and um, I'd get the weight off again. But this time I was not gaining 
control, and I was not to regain control. And, you know, that, that was very, very depressing to me. I just I couldn't believe that that was happening because I, I had been able to restrict and gain the weight and lose the weight. And, um, and this reminds me, um, again, the bottom, you know, further down on page uh, 30, that all of us felt at times that we were regaining control. But such intervals, usually brief, were inevitably followed by still less control, which led in time to pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. And that's um, certainly where I was headed. And, um, you know, this is that um, baffling feature um, of of this disease um, that, you know, even though I want to stop, I can't, Um, you know, it. You know, the page 34 of the big book, it says that this is the baffling feature of alcoholism as we know it. This utter inability to leave it alone, no matter how great the necessity or the wish. And believe me, I had the wish and the desire. I wanted, I wanted to lose the weight. Um, so thankfully, thankfully, the hand of God, um, <laughs> another self-help book, um, um, that's, you know, where I always went, um, in this book, I was reading along, and I was thinking, yeah, this is me. I was identifying in, and I was I was devouring this book as I devoured my food and couldn't wait to get to the end to see what the, the, the answer was, like I always did with all the other self-help books. What's the answer? Here's the problem. This, this is me. Okay, um, yeah, I can't stop eating. Um, my life is in shambles. Tell me what to do. I was going to do. This author of this book had me so convinced that this was my problem, this was me, that I thought whatever she says is the answer, I'm, I'm going to do it. Yeah, I'm just going to do it. Until I got to the end and and the author said, you know, you can't get better unless you go to Overeaters Anonymous. And and I remember that feeling inside. It's like, no, that, that, can't, that can't be the answer. Man, I tried that. But, I, you know, I kept looking at this book and reading it, and it's like, well, this is me. Um, this is what she says I need to do. So it was July 13th of 2005 when I really crawled back into the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous because I was desperate. I had reached, you know, that I was in that black abyss and I didn't know how to get out. My I'll show you attitude was not working at all. And I was going to do whatever you told me to do to get abstinent. And I remember that that uh, speaker, the person who was sharing at that meeting. It was I went to a newcomer's meeting. At least I listened to one thought in my head that, Michelle, you need to admit that you know nothing about getting abstinent. You need to go to a newcomer's meeting because my ego was saying, oh, you know, you were there for a year. You know about this program. Um, but no, thankfully, I went and I heard this woman talk about how she had got, traveled to China and um, and she was going to any length to stay abstinent. Um, she was using her computer to stay in touch with people. And I, I was just really impressed at what she was willing to do and and so I got a temporary sponsor, and I got abstinent that week, um, relying on, you know, the old food plans that um, that seemed to help me before. So I, I really wasn't trying to, you know, really wasn't surrendering. I was just saying, like, okay, I got a problem. I'm going to come in here. I'm going to do what you tell me to do, um, but I'm going to I'm going to pick my own food plan. Thank you very much. And um, so I did find um, a food. I did find a sponsor who um, found exactly what I was looking for. Um, Be careful what you pray for. I was praying for someone who would follow a food plan that had low carbs, and lo and behold, there she was. And so I got abstinent, and, um, you know, the mantra was, abstinence is the most important thing. 
in in my life without exception. And so I held on to that. There I was again. I was abstinent, but I was also arrogant and rebellious and had bouts of frustration and restlessness. But I'll tell you, I was not eating my binge foods. And, um, and again, looking to that as the solution. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, um, that reminded me, um, you know, of something I'd read in the big book on, on page 40. It says um, he was interested in conceded that he had some of the symptoms, but he was a long way from admitting that he could do nothing about it himself. He was positive that this humiliating experience plus the knowledge he had acquired would keep him sober the rest of his life. Self-knowledge would fix it. Well, that that's where I was. I was exactly there. And then down at the bottom of that same page, um, it says, I felt I had every right to be self-confident, that it would be only a matter of exercising my willpower and keeping on guard. That's exactly where I was. Um, in 2009, um, that same sponsor, you know, I stayed Pretty, I would say pretty much abstinent, but I would have these slips, and when my sponsor would have a slip, you know, she would tell me about it. So I thought slips were just part of the process, just part of being absent. You have a slip, and then you get back. Um, didn't realizing it was sort of like trying to control and um, restrict, like I had before. So the same sponsor had to let me go in order to be available to sponsor for this program that really did um, hold this food plan up to be the answer. And so I remember having two thoughts. The first was I felt alone and abandoned and not, and I thought, you know, I'm just not going to stay in OA. You know, this is, you know, brought back the same feelings of my childhood. Couldn't trust this person there. She is leaving me. And then the second thought, which I believe today came from my higher power, was, well, why don't you go to more meetings and see if you can find a new sponsor? Well, that certainly wasn't me thinking. That was the hand of God. And thankfully, I listened to that second thought. And in 2009, I asked a recovered sponsor if she would help me through the steps according to the big book. Um, I had heard her speak at conventions, and she was what they call a big book thumper. I had never gotten into the big book before. I was always intrigued by it. I would always make sure I'd go to hear those speakers because it was um, seemed like there was something different about them. I didn't know what it was. And so um, even though I had a recovered sponsor and I was willing, I found that I was in and out of the food, and I still, I still couldn't stay stopped. And um, each time I'd be taken, my sponsor would take me back to step one. And um, she would just say, Michelle, you're drunk on food. Um, you can't move any further. Just we're, we're on step one. And I kept plodding along. And, and I know today it was only by the grace of God that I stayed with the program and the directions from my sponsor. And um, it was in 2010 when I, I had been abstinent for a while. And I'd made it past step one. And, um, but still holding on to that, you know, self-knowledge and um being on guard, and um, and my father my father passed away in um, on March 24th of um, 2010, and I, it was just crazy with um, the siblings coming back into town and uh, dealing um, with some of the insanity there, and um, I you know I stayed abstinent through the um, you know through the funeral, and then you know that that day came where that insane thought came that I could pick up. And I did. I picked up. It, it was just an insane thought. And um, I was back at step one again, frustrated with my slow process through, you know, the steps, you know, stopping and starting. And I used my dad's death as an excuse. And it was almost like I was daring my sponsor to challenge me on it, you know. And, you know, by the grace of God, you know, she was there being compassionate, supporting me through my grief, um, letting me just stay in my insanity because, 
um, that's what I needed to, to reach my bottom. And um, she was still telling me what to do. She was still giving me good orderly direction. And um, and I, I, would, I would get to a point where I wouldn't tell her, and then I would tell her, you know, yeah, you know, I'm back in the food again. She was so patient, and I kept blaming my dad's my dad's death. And, um, you know, you know, back on page 42, it says, I saw that willpower and self-knowledge would not help in those strange mental blank spots. Well, I was soon to learn that. I was soon to learn that because I, you know, I was, I kept picking my stop date. You know, I kept picking it. I, I, I. And it was like, okay, it's now October of 2010. Oh my gosh, you know, um, I, I'm, you know, my disease is progressing. We all know what that looks like, just crazier and crazier. And I would pick a date, and I thought, oh, you know, 10, 10, 10, doesn't that sound, oh, that would be a great abstinent date. I'm going to, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to stop on that date. Well, you know, that day came and went. And finally, there was a, a big book retreat that was going to be happening uh, the, the weekend of October 22nd, 23rd, somewhere in there. And I realized I couldn't get stopped. And I, I finally, I got on my knees. And I just asked God for help. God, please help me. I, you know, I don't know how to do this. I don't know anything about it. And when I went into that retreat, by the grace of God, I was like two, two, maybe three days abstinent. And I listened to what people were saying. I listened in that big book retreat, and I listened to those words that were coming alive for me. Finally, finally, I was in that place of desperation, and I heard what those words were saying. And I, I just hung on every word. We'd take a break. I couldn't wait to get back into those rooms because those words were life-saving to me. They were starting to make sense. I started to understand that I didn't eat because my dad died. I ate because the food brought me ease and comfort. That was, that was, I have this disease called compulsive overeating. That's why I eat. Um, you know, I can make up any kind of uh, reasoning, excuse, rationalization, but the truth is I am a real compulsive overeater. And step two, came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. I finally heard those words that no human aid could help me, no self-help book, uh, no sponsor. Um, it, it had to be from a supernatural power to do for me what I couldn't do for myself. I needed to learn to believe and trust in a power greater than myself. And I had to let go of my childhood ideas of what a higher power was. And um, I, it was then I began to open my mind to the possibilities of a loving, compassionate, giving higher power who wanted the best for me. And all I did was just open my mind, let go of those prejudices, like the big book tells me to do, and God did the rest. God did the rest. You know, um, I love that proposition on page 53. You know, my, when my sponsor pointed it out to me, it was just like, wow, it's so powerful. You know, that I had to be fearless and faith that either God is everything or else he is nothing. Well, I knew God God was big, you know, but I didn't realize that I was saying he was everything or, or nothing when I when I would choose to go back to food and go back to worship food that God was that food was everything. No, God was everything. I, I, I was understanding that. God was revealing that to me. I was embracing it. And then made a decision to turn my life and my will over to the care of a power greater than myself. I, you know, I needed a concept of a loving God. Why would I turn my life and my will over to anyone's care if I didn't think they were loving and compassionate? And, you know, I, I was told that the old timers, you know, um, took this step in a posture of humility. And I, I was offered that opportunity to do so at my home group. And that was, made a real impact on me. I didn't have to do it that way. 
um, I had a choice, and I was told that, but I took this step on my knees in my OA home group, and I remember that sense of God consciousness, feeling of being closer to God than I'd ever felt before. And and at that time, you know, I'm, I know I'm making that decision to go through the rest of the steps, and I have learned that by going through the process, by going through steps four through nine, that's how I learned to align my will with God's will. That's where the process happens. I don't make it happen. God is there in every step. I made that searching and fearless moral inventory. I was willing to fill out the forms with my resentments, fears, sex conduct. I, you know, I wasn't sure about my, my part. You know, I, I was willing to look at it, but I was pretty wishy-washy when I got together with my sponsor and uh, because I was still blinded to some of my character defects. I didn't really see my part in it. How, you know, what possible part could I play, you know, um, you know, with my mother, you know, she was the adult and, you know, she was supposed to love me unconditionally and she didn't. And, you know, why can't I resent her? How, how did I have a part in that? And, um, you know, I, I later, you know, God revealed later to me what my part in that was. I didn't see it right of the way. I did put her on my list, but I was still not convinced. I could see how people pleasing was a manifestation of my dishonesty. Um, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't honest who I was with you. Um, I wanted to find out what would make you happy so that I would get your approval, you know, self-seeking, um, I, you know, dishonest and not giving of myself. I wouldn't let you see who I was. Um, those little white lies and lies of omission by not speaking my truth because I'd learned to shut down and, you know, I would only get more pain if I spoke up and I wasn't willing to speak the truth or my truth. That's also being dishonest. And as I went through this with my sponsor, and she lovingly pointed these things out because I wanted to see them, um, and she showed me the scales of pride and prejudice did start to fall from my eyes. In my character defects, I could see how I had harmed my loved ones. And they did, it became crystal clear to me, and it became objectionable to me. I didn't want to be that person anymore. And I, I followed the directions in the big book. My sponsor said, go home, spend an hour, you know, pray about it. Thank God, you know, thank God um, for what's been revealed. And ask him if there's anything else. And at that time, there was not. But there was such a demonstration of unconditional love that my sponsor showed me in accepting my moral inventory with just a matter-of-fact attitude. You know, it was not earth-shattering. Um, she wasn't judging or acting like my actions were shocking or to be shamed. And I had been carrying quite enough guilt and shame myself, and um, it was such a relief to share it with another person who was recovered. And I trusted that she knew the way out of this misery um, because she had what I wanted, and that I trusted and believed that she would guide me out of this quicksand, out of this abyss which I had fallen into and lived in for so long. And I, I was willing to do um, whatever she told me to do. I was willing to follow her instructions, even at times when, <clears throat> when at first I would balk, um, but knew that um, I had no reason to not trust her, and so I would continue on. And so step six and seven, um, this process was was more painful than I expected it to be at first because God was now showing me and giving me lessons and opportunities to see just how my character defects were manifesting themselves in my relationships with other people. Um, you know, and at first the perfectionism in me was, was frustrated because, you know, I wanted to go on in life now um, without making these mistakes. I, I didn't like it when I would be given these opportunities, but it was pointed out to me by my sponsor that this is a gift. This is a gift to be able to see this uh, and to reveal my distorted thinking and, and that there are going to be falls in life. And it's it's not the falling or the failing. It's just getting up. It's getting back up when I learn 
um, it's how I learned the most about myself and how I do build character. And that was certainly a new way of thinking and a new way of acting for me. And so six and seven are those two little paragraphs in the big book. But, oh, my gosh, when you read the AA 12 and 12, there's so much in there. And that those are so much growing um, steps for me. And God never gave up on me. He kept giving me more chances to learn to practice these principles and to learn these principles and to see where I wasn't practicing these principles. Um, I utilized the fear prayer a lot. You know, God, please remove this fear from me. Um, direct my attention to what you would have me be. Because fear blocked me so much of the time, and it still does today at times. I, I rely on that fear prayer. I rely on God to remove that fear. And it is from practicing these steps that allows me to see it, you know, the awareness first. And then I accept that, yes, I am human. Um, like I hear so much on the line that's helped me so much, I cannot rise above the human condition. Um, but I need to let go of my false pride that I should do this thing called life perfectly. And my perfectionism, like I said, has been a defect, which is man manifested in many different ways. And um, one example is I had to be right about everything to be okay. And I, I would argue until I either wore you out or you walked away from me. Um, so I, it's hard to be in a relationship with someone when I have that kind of an attitude. And I couldn't admit that I had made a mistake for fear of being judged when all along, you know, my my character defect of judging others. And I found out that I was, you know, judging people, so therefore judging myself. And, you know, I learned about this false pride, you know, thinking I'm less than. Um, and the other side of the coin uh, is pointed out to me is pride. And so both, both character defects block God. And the purpose of doing the steps is to unblock my channel so I can receive that communication, have that spiritual awakening, that God consciousness, a new state of being, new attitudes, new ideas, um, you know, operating on a spiritual plane. And so once I saw how these character defects were manifesting in my behavior, they did become objectionable to me. And step eight made that list of people I had harmed. You know, it came from my step four inventory of resentments, fears, and sex conduct. And it was, you know, a revelation to me that the people I thought had harmed me um, were owed an immense from me. You know, that that was, you know, as they say, a hard thing to swallow at first. Um, and so some were easier than others. You know, I could see how I had hurt, you know, my children. I had seen how I'd hurt my spouse. And, um, you know, I, I I wanted better relationships, and I, I made those I made those amends. And, you know, God kept showing me um, in Step 6 and 7, showing me my character defects and my coworkers. I could see how, you know, like my supervisor, I, you know, I uh, didn't agree with her, and I saw the where that was coming from. She was younger than me, and I, I thought I was all that much wiser. And so um, every chance that I got to see her make a mistake, you know, that's what I looked for. And I would pounce on that. I would gossip about it. There was another manifestation of a character defect that you know, was objectionable to me. So I, I needed to make amends. You know, my sponsor directed me. You know, okay, you talked about that person. Now when that person is present or with the same person that you gossip about, you, first of all, you apologize um, for gossiping, you know, that you're not, that's not the person you want to be, and you're not going to do that anymore. And then, you know, compliment that person genuinely, sincerely. And um, over time, you know, I, you know, I have changed. You know, the same supervisor in my eyes now is very wise and capable. Um, just a change in perspective from being able to be honest with myself. In Step 9, God has provided so many opportunities for me to make amends um, wherever possible. Um, I didn't go out there looking for them. 
um, in some instances. Um, sometimes God brought them right to me. Uh, the ones that were obvious to me with my, you know, my coworkers, the gossiping, um, the people-pleasing, um, the manipulation with my sisters, you know, saying something more than once to try to get someone to do something or direct them and be in control, you know, I, I made amends, and um, I sincerely, genuinely, when I was to the point where they were objectionable and I did not want to do them again with God's help, I made those amends. And there's several times when, when God has brought in um an amends-making opportunity that I wasn't even aware of when I first did my inventory. And one of them was a friend um, that came back into my life after 10 years. Um, I had, I think that was 2011, after I had gone through a lot of my amends. Um, And this was a woman that, it was a little bit different amends, and that's why I'm going to share it, in that um, her husband passed away, and and in his passing he was sick and in the hospital, and she, she had no children, and her parents were, were deceased, and she asked me as a friend, as a close friend, if I would be there with her, and I was. And I was there with her through the funeral, and I stayed at her house, and we became close, and we were friends professionally as well. And and in her grief, um, I watched her deteriorate and, and turn to things that were scary to me. And instead of um, praying and asking God for direction, of course, that was 10 years, that was before, 10 years ago, that was before I was even in recovered state, what I had done was um, turned to someone that I barely knew and looked up his phone number and um, knew he was a close personal friend of hers and left a message on his answering machine at his place of business. And I always felt shameful about that. And when we were brought back together at a professional conference, um, I we, we connected. Uh, enough time had passed. She had healed. I had healed through whatever. At that time was a rift for us. And we were getting back together and we were sitting there over lunch and I felt this overwhelming urge to make an amends to her. I hadn't really prayed about it. I hadn't talked to my sponsor about it. And um, as I started to say something, she stopped me. And um, and we just said, well, whatever it was, you know, and she, and, but she stopped me. And she said, me too. And we didn't say anything. And when I finally talked to my sponsor about it, she said, Michelle, that was God stopping you from causing further harm. You do not know if she ever heard about you know, whether you left that message or not, you could have caused further harm. And so this is how you need to make that amends. And this this amends that she was about to ask me to do, um, I didn't think I could possibly do. After 10 years of passing, she said I needed to contact the person I had left the message to on the machine at their business because, you know, who knows who could have heard that. You know, I needed to make amends. And I put that person in a position that I put it on his answering machine. And so I, I was really not wanting to make this amends, but I had always trusted my sponsor, and um, she, by the grace of God, and she was a very spiritual person, that this was the right thing to do. And I was all caught up in the fact, well, what am I going to say when he calls me back? And, you know, what, you know, I'm trying to rehearse what I would say and praying about it. Finally, she said, Michelle, you know, you're not all that. You know, you're placing too much importance. This is a busy professional person. You don't know that he's even going to call you back. So just make the amends and let God guide you, and God will give you the words. And so one of the hardest things I ever did, but I did it. And, um, you know, she was right. He he didn't call me back the first time, and so 10 years later, he didn't call me back. But I left my name, I left my phone number, said I needed to make an amends. And, you know, there there was freedom in that. Um, The shame was gone, the guilt was gone, and I'm grateful that I, I didn't. Um, that I did consult my sponsor because I could have caused more harm. She was right. 
So sometimes these making amends are, are tricky business, and it is so important to, to consult a recovered person. And so, you know, 10, 11, and 12, you know, help me to continue to enlarge my spiritual life one day at a time so I can, um, you know, remain and become, the, you know, remain abstinent is what I say, but actually, you know, to enlarge my spiritual life so that I can become the person that God wants me to be. I continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. Love and tolerance of others is, is the code I want to follow. Um, it's, it's my effort. It's not in my effort to control. It never was, and that's what I needed to see, but it's in the spiritual fitness, which brings the miracle of freedom, the freedom as it's expressed in, in the promises in the big book. And, you know, my relations with my one sister, you know, that I've talked about, that has changed, too. I, I'm accepting of her today. I, you know, I've had opportunities, you know, with my parents passing and, the, um, you know, the estate went into probate. And, you know, some people say, like, oh, you know, Michelle, I'm so sorry that it went to probate. That, you know, that can be, you know, not a good thing. And, you know, God's wisdom and nothing happens in God's world by mistake. It's been such a blessing because over this time, you know, we're, we're finally, you know, did sell the house just a couple of weeks ago. And we're going to be closing out the estate, God willing, in the next few weeks. But it's been a blessing because it's allowed me to heal with my relationships with my siblings you know, when my mother, when my father passed away, the one sister that I played the game with, the dance, you know, the dance of anger, the dance of, um, you know, I'll show you. And, you know, she said some things that I thought were insensitive and um, and I was judging her. And today I see that, you know, it was her grief. It was, she was grief stricken and she said some things that didn't make sense. I probably did too. And today, you know, it, I've been stopped again because I, I can enter into that dance with her. Um, because of fear, fear that, you know, um, she's going to come after me still and get more than what I think, what I think she deserves. And I, I just want to say that, you know, this past week, God has really revealed to me, I was going to, um, I was told by the realtor, oh, you, you need to get these forms to protect yourself, you know, and, and it didn't feel right. It just didn't feel right. And I thought, God, you know, guide me. Do I, I need to get some more information here? So I did. I got more information about these forms, these legal waivers of um, personal, I guess, liability of some sort. And um, I'm laughing now because it is kind of ridiculous. And um, But the, the notion was planted, and I, my old way of thinking about I can't let her get more than me um, kind of attitude was, was trying to rear its um, presence. And um, so I consulted with people of knowledge. I consulted people who knew and come to find out, no, no, these forms don't need to be there because they, they'd be useless. This is a probate estate, it was explained to me, and I am just the representative, and I'm just carrying out what the court is asking me to do. I, you know, I've got God's protection. I don't need any other protection. But what it stopped me from doing was acting on that without getting information, maybe sending these forms. And what kind of message might I still be sending to my sister? You know, there's not love and tolerance there. And I'm so grateful that, you know, God put that intuitive thought into my mind to get more information, you know, gather more information, because maybe, maybe, I don't know, there might have been some harm done there. And I am grateful because I just say, no, I'm not going to, you know, dance that dance anymore. Um, I, I, you know, I love 
love my sister today, and um, I can give her a break because, you know, we were all going through periods of grief. You know, step 11, prayer and meditation. You know, this is my communication with God in order to build a relationship or that God consciousness. And, you know, the the big book, um, you know, talks about that. Um, In step 11, um, that uh, they flatly declare that since they have come to believe in a power greater than themselves, to take a certain attitude toward that power and to do certain simple things. There have been a, a revolutionary change in their way of living and thinking. And, you know, that's the result. You know, that I've had this revolutionary change in my way of thinking and my way of living um, because of the communication that, that I, um, you know, practice one one day at a time. And it, and it says, leaving aside, you know, on page 51, I'm, I'm there now, leaving aside the drink question, they tell why living was so unsatisfactory. They show, um, these are recovered people, they show how the change came over them. And that's what I hope I have done as leaving the drink question aside, tell you how my life was so unsatisfactory and how that change came about for me. And when many hundreds of people are able to say that the consciousness of the presence of God is today the most important fact of their lives, they present a powerful reason why one should have faith, and and me too. I hope that you know that my story has been um, a, a powerful reason to show how how this change has come about. And you know, step twelve has three parts: that spiritual awakening, um, and then the second part, carrying the message; the third part, practicing these principles in all our affairs. And I like the way you know the AA um, 12 and 12. You know, in the table of contents, it talks about that spiritual awakening is a new state of consciousness and being, a new state of consciousness and being, and and that is um, a beautiful state to be living in, a new state. And I I hope that I can continue to practice these principles and be an open channel of God's love, um, because living in the disease, I was not able to hear any intuitive thoughts that came to me from my higher power like I am today. And I am just so grateful because, you know, the, the, the promises have come true for me. They've been fulfilled um, for me, sometimes slowly, but they will always materialize if we work for them. These promises happen for me, and they can happen for you, the newcomer or the newly recovered, like me. It's just been a couple of years. After we work the steps, we find these, that spiritual fitness is evidenced by the promises, and I just want to, um, you know, leave you um, with with the promises that you know I I do have, um, you know, um, that a sense of peace and freedom that I had never had before. I I do understand uh, a new understanding. Um, it's a feeling. It's an experience, and <clears throat> it comes from reliance um, on a power greater than myself. And before my reliance had been on my binge foods and then on other externals, you know, food plans, sponsors, spouses, or certain outcomes. But, you know, the lessons I've learned show me that my sole reliance is on God or a higher power. And I like the proposition that God is either everything or else he is nothing. And now I like to embrace the idea that when I am with God, I have everything. And when I am not with God or doing God's will, I have nothing. And um, I'm just going to close with that, and I think I might have gone a little bit over, so um, I'm going to stop and pass. And thank you so much. Thank you so much. So grateful. I pass. Michelle, thank you. We thank you. 
Thank you, Michelle, for sharing with us what you used to be like, what happened, and what you are like now. And that as a result of these steps, you've had a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from compulsive overeating. We thank you for your message of recovery this morning. Now we open the line up for any questions that you would like to direct to Michelle this morning. You can press star 1 to unmute if you'd like. Uh, hi, this is Kathy. I'm a compulsive overeater. May I ask a question? Go ahead, Kathy. Good morning. Thank you, Leah. Michelle, thanks so much for your qualification. It was really very special to hear your journey, and I identify a lot with it. Um, I That idea that God is everything or God is nothing and actually coming to know that um, is something that I feel like I'm I'm there sometimes and not there at other times. Uh and similarly with my step 11, sometimes it's uh very special and very spiritual and sometimes it feels kind of routine and disconnected for me. Um and I'm wondering if you could just say a little bit more about that part of your path. I guess it would be you know, the step 11 and step 3 combined, how how that evolved for you. Was it in fits and starts or all at once or something else? Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, Kathy. Um, uh, yes, um, I, I, I too um, can relate to what you're saying, and, and it happens for me that way too. Um, it can come on very strong. It can be there. And then I can have – I was listening to a tape um, with my sponsor and some other um, recovered compulsive overeaters. We were listening to a CD, and it, this um, speaker talked about having moments of agnosticism. Mm. And um, and so I would – you know, I love going back and reading that chapter, We Agnostics, and, um, you know, I'd invite you to to maybe go back and re- reread that too, um, as I often do. Um because I do have moments of what I call agnosticism where I, um, God's not in the equation. And, you know, when I was, um, it just happened again when, you know, I was thinking about um, what could I do to protect myself. I was having a moment of where I wasn't really seeing that God was everything. And I think as a human being, I'm, I'm going to have those moments. And what I do to um, enlarge my spiritual life is, um, you know, like you mentioned, step three. I love step three. I, you know, I want to. I say it every morning, turning my life and my will over to God. It's like, okay, God, um, what are your plans for me today? How can I serve you? And then step eleven, I do take that time each day in prayer and meditation to build that relationship. And um, I'm, I'm putting, you know, I'm using um, a lot of um, analogies that my sponsor has given to me because they've helped me so much, and I'm such a visual person. I I need concrete ideas, and so she gave me the idea that I have a spiritual bank account. And, Mm. you know, those of you uh, probably have heard this maybe before, so it's a spiritual bank account that I'm making a deposit every day Mm. so that when I need to make a heavy withdrawal, um, you know, I, I've built it up. I've enlarged my spiritual life, and so that is that is very important to me today. 
Um, and that's how I have learned to rely on a power greater than myself is to give that time to God. You know, if that is the most important thing in my life, a relationship with God, that God consciousness, how much time am I spending on the most important thing in my life? You know, yeah. I, spend, you know I spend a lot of time in the food and um, binging and hiding food and getting food and eating the food, building that relationship. So um, I, too, I, too, struggle um, and have those mo. I like that term um, that I heard on, on that CD, a moment of agnosticism. Um, I do believe in God, but sometimes I have those moments where God isn't everything. And um, so it, for me, it's a process. It's um, building that relationship, and it does happen. And, um, and maybe you've seen evidence of that in your life already, that um, you've been able to make those withdrawals, and it's a process. And, um, you know, I've just um, a little over two years recovered, and I hear people, um, you know, I don't want to compare, but I hear people who the longer I practice this, you know, it's like anything else. The longer I practice, um, the more quickly I, um, you know, I, I learn to go there and respond in that direction. So I, too, have those moments. And uh, just keep doing what you're doing, Kathy. It sounds like you're on the right track. Yeah, thank you so much, Michelle. Thank you for the question. Yes, Kathy, thank you for the question. And, of course, Michelle, to you for the response. Any other questions this morning? Star one to unmute. Hi, it's Yudis. May I ask a question, please? Of course. Go ahead. Good morning, and thank you so much for the very rich descriptions, um, particularly of the amends process. I wanted to ask you if you would describe, if you um, would be able to describe a little bit, the amends process to your children and how your parenting is different now than it, in recovery than it was when we, you were in the illness. And thank you so much. Thank you. Um, let's see, you said, how did I make the amends to my children? And then how is my parenting different? Um, well, I made the amends um, uh, to my son. You know, um, I was directed when I made an amends to look at the specific behavior um, and then to... Um, you know, was it objectionable to me? And then was I at a point where I genuinely meant I would not do this again? And it needed to come from a place where, um, you know, I was no longer feeling, you know, the guilt and the shame. It, it was coming from a place of love. Um, that was one direction that I appreciated so much my sponsor giving me. When you're going to make an amends, Michelle, make sure it is, you know, if you're not at a place of love, then you're not ready to make that amends yet. And she kind of gave me that formula. So that was the formula that I followed, um, naming the specific amend and saying that, you know, that was inappropriate and that, you know, I, um, I'm sorry for any harm that it, ca you know, caused you and that I don't want to do that behavior again. And so, you know, how I practice it now, when my, my two children, our adult children now, they're 27 and 29, and um, what I practice now is, um, <clears throat> excuse me, um, respecting them, respecting their decisions and their choices, um, trying not to control, uh, not getting angry, 
although um you know God gives me many opportunities to practice and and to um hopefully not repeat that behavior again and again I'm a person of example and concrete stories and um what you know I used you know used to get upset when they were children for just being children just doing little things and making messes you know um disrupting my orderly um, way and and not doing things the way that I wanted them to do, not accepting them as children and being delightful and you know it went back to my childhood of controlling. So let me give you an, a concrete example that just happened and and thank you God that um, I did it differently this time. You know um, our oldest son has been so generous to give of his time and to stay in my parents' home until we got it sold and um, so we moved furniture around and. We moved a piece of furniture from my parents' bedroom to the basement, and my son had a dog, and we allowed it, and the dog was in the basement. Well, um, dogs will be dogs, and the dog, you know, was in the chewing stage, and he chewed up this piece of furniture. And I had totally forgotten about it. It happened probably about a year ago. And so, you know, now that the house is sold, um, my son, you know, I told him, I said, well, your aunt's coming for that piece of furniture, and I had forgotten all about the incident. And he said, well, Mom, it's not here, you know. And, well, actually, he didn't tell me. He was afraid to tell me because he didn't want to disappoint me, so he told his dad. And, you know, so I, for a moment there, I was upset. But it was, I was fearful because my sister, one of my sisters wanted the furniture. I was embarrassed. You know, I'm looking at my character defects now. I was embarrassed because, well, how was I going to tell my sister? I didn't want to disappoint anybody, you know, you know if people-pleasing comes up. And so I prayed about it. I prayed about it, and I thought, my goodness, you know, Michelle, you would let a piece of old furniture come in the way of a loving relationship with your son? How important is that? And, you know, it took me a matter of, I would say, maybe an hour or two, you know, having those those moments of agnosticism. But, you know, by the grace of God, you know, I I was able to call my son, and I said, you know, I understand that, you know, you you weren't able to call me. You called your dad, and I just want to let you know that you know it's just a, it's just a piece of furniture. Um, it's okay. You know, I understand. And um, you know, he said, "Yeah, mom, it's just you know, it's just a possession." You know, and I you know, there's an example of doing it differently. Now I had to go through it. I had to go through the steps um, because my old response is, you know, I want it my way. I want everything to go perfectly. I don't know if that answers your question or not but you know and I was able to tell my son thank you here's a new way here's a new way of parenting thank you for you know John your generosity of moving into my parents house and making it easier for me because their house is an hour away from where I live and it's 10 minutes from where he works thank you thank you so much for being so generous and taking care of my parents property you know, mowing the lawn, shoveling the driveway, being there so it would be, you know, safe until we sold it. So it's a new way of parenting, a new way of not just thinking about me. But I have those moments, and I go there, and I'm thankful for the steps because, um, you know, without these steps, I would be back, you know, I, I, I don't know where I would be. I don't know where I'd be, but I would not be recovered today. That's all I can say is I don't know where I would be, but I'm glad to be where I am today. So it's a little bit different for me because my my children are adult children, and um, I hope that answered your question, Eunice. Thank you.
Thank you, Yudis, for the question. Michelle, for the beautiful response. Anyone else this morning, questions related to anything Michelle shared regarding her journey through the steps? Star one to unmute. Uh, this is Margaret, New Jersey. Like, can I ask Michelle a question? Of course. Uh, thank you, Michelle. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Um, I have a question about sponsoring. Uh, you know, we were just reading to the wives this week, and and you know, this trying to figure out when is time to let go, and um, you know. It's if somebody is not ready or somebody needs a different sponsor or, or something like that. But your sponsor seemed like she stood with you as you went up and down in the beginning. And uh, I was wondering how you could relate that a little bit uh, a little bit more to me and to the group. Thanks. Okay. Um, yes, thanks, Margaret. Um, <clears throat> you know, it, it's an interesting question because I've, I've asked my sponsor that same question. Um, because I, I too struggle with, um, you know, my sponsoring, you know, and I, and I go to her and for some guidance and, um, I go to my higher power for guidance too, because that's where my sponsor always refers me, you know, um, pray about it. What is God's will? And, um, I do struggle, like, am I enabling or, you know, am I really carrying the message? And I asked her, I said, um, why? Why did you stay with me? Because um, why didn't you just cut me loose? And what, if I remember, if I'm remembering what she said, what I, how I interpreted it, and um, you know, I'm hoping I'm doing um, her service by um, this is my perception, and I'm not speaking for her about how she sponsors at all. I'm just talking about the response that I believe I received when I asked her that question was that. She told me that what she saw was that I was being honest with her, and I, I didn't argue with her, <clears throat> and I was being honest. And somehow, from her years of um, experience of sponsoring, um, she saw that even though I got back in the food, um, when she would confront me about it, I would, um, and this is what I remember her telling me anyway, is that I, I would say okay, and I would follow the directions that she gave me. Um, even if maybe they were short-lived, even if it was only like a month. And, um, and, and we talk about that relationship now and, and that early relationship, and, and she is now able to give me a little insight on what she saw. But what I believe was the underlying um, thread that kept the sponsee sponsorship alive between us was my willingness to do what she told me to do when I had fallen and to get I would I would do I would just okay I'm back at step one again I didn't like it but I was back I can't tell you how many times I read doctor's opinion and Bill's story I just can't tell you how many times and um, I guess it was my willingness would be the answer and so I pray to my higher power you know to show me because I have um, had to follow God's direction and let people go based on the fact that I felt God was telling me that um, 
you know, I wasn't helping, that maybe God was telling me I wasn't the best sponsor for them. And that, you know, that's really hard for me as a people pleaser to, um, because I, I want to keep trying. I want to, like, I'll show you. I, we can we can do this instead of letting God guide me and saying, you know, this, I have someone better. I have someone else in mind for this person, Michelle. Let let this person go. Um, this person has come. I brought this person into your life, and she's taught you something. Now let this person go, and um, don't keep on holding on for selfish reasons because of your ego. Um, and I can do that. And so when I let someone go, it it, it um, it's not easy for me. I really rely on God's strength and God's guidance to do that. And that came from what my sponsor would tell me to do, pray about it, pray about it, and see where God is guiding you. And um, so I guess it's willingness, the willingness to do whatever I was told to do, not arguing with my sponsor, um, and acting like I knew what was best, because I knew I didn't know what was best, willing to take direction. And then um, it is hard for a people pleaser like me to let people go, but I I know that builds character in me, and and I know that God is guiding me to say, Michelle, you're not you're not the best sponsor for everyone. You know, there's so many people out there, but take the lesson that I have brought to you. That's the other thing my sponsor has taught me is that there's lessons in it for me. You know, so many times my ego wants to think that, you know, that I'm doing such a a great thing as sponsoring, and I am grateful. I am grateful for all my sponsees. They each and every one no matter what length of time I've had them, have taught me so much. And um, so I hope that answered your question. I digressed a little bit there. Um, did I answer your question, Margaret? Margaret, star one to unmute. Oh, I'm sorry, I was talking. Yes, you did, Michelle. You did uh, answer my question, and, and maybe I'll even call you at a later date and you know, get some more guidance with that because I, I find that, you know, I'm kind of, I don't give up either, I, and I don't want to, uh, but yet they're, you know, just kind of knowing that time. And uh, what I try and do before I let somebody go is make sure that they have a, if they're, you know, they're willing, is that they have a support group around them that they've been reaching out to other people, and that seems to uh, mm-hmm. to help. And maybe in that process they will even find somebody else. So that was very helpful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Margaret, for the question. Any other questions on your minds this morning? Star 1 to unmute. Uh, would Michelle like to give her a uh, phone number? Michelle, would you like to give your phone number? Um, yes, I'd be happy to. I'm on Central Standard Time, and my phone number um, is 314-605-8662. And um, that is my cell phone. It's Thank, you. Thank you. Thank you, Michelle. Uh, this is Thank you. Any questions? Star one to unmute. Um, could Michelle just repeat her phone number? Sure. Um, it's area code three one four six 
1-800-805-8662. And Central Standard Time, it's um, AT&T cell phone. Thank you. Anyone else? Questions for Michelle regarding the program of recovery? I would like to ask a question. My name is Allison. Allison, go ahead. Uh, hi, Michelle. Um, I'm wondering how long you've been married and how your marriage has changed. Okay. Um, <clears throat> thank you, Allison. Thank you for that question. Um, in December, we just celebrated 38 years um, of being together, marriage. Um, we knew each other two years prior to that. Um, oh, my goodness, how has it changed? Um, thank you for that question. Um, <clears throat> yes, talk about argumentative, and I will show you. Um, I think that really defined, um, you know, my behavior um, in this relationship. And I... You know, before I had God in my life, before I had a relationship where I relied on a power greater than myself, I really relied on my spouse for for everything. You know, he was my higher power. He he was everything. And, you know, I did not want to be disappointed. I, I, um, and, you know, he's human, so I was frequently disappointed, and I was frequently lashing out and trying to manipulate and control him um, to give me what I thought I needed. And that was not, you can get the picture, that's not a very healthy relationship. So if I didn't get my way um, early in the marriage, I found that um, tears, tears were helpful, um, that he didn't like tears, and um, that would get his attention, and, and he would um, be willing to give me what I wanted. Um, uh, sulking, um, the silent treatment, um, I, I practiced... Um, all my character defects on the one that was the closest to me, the one who was most important to me um, in my relationships. And, you know, I hurt him um, a lot. And it took a while for him to trust me, uh, you can imagine. And um, some of the things he would say that I just didn't get, um, and I've shared this before on the line, is he would say, you know, um, I don't know why I even talk to you because, you know, every time – we have a discussion, I'm, I'm always wrong. And, um, and in my arrogance and in my disease, I just thought that, yes, I was the superior one, and, you know, that that's just how sick I was in my disease and in wanting to get what I wanted. And um, it was not uh, an equal partnership at all, and there was not respect there. And that's not the way um, God would want me to express my love for someone um, that I care so deeply about. And so I did, um, I was a tornado in, in this house, and especially with my spouse. And um, the first time to make amends to him before he, I knew he wouldn't listen to me, but why, why would he? I'd given him so much cause not to and reason not to. I, I wrote him a letter, and I stuck it in his briefcase so that he could read it on his own time because the other thing I would do is I would demand his attention. You know, if he wanted to go to bed, it would be like, "Oh no, we're we're going to have this out. You're not you're not going to sleep." You know, I'd turn the light on. I I would be defiant and rebellious, and and um, I I wrote him a letter from my heart and put it in his briefcase, and even then, you can imagine, well, 
you know, how could he trust me still that I wasn't going to come back and try to manipulate him? So it, it's been gradual, um, and even today, you know, I, I have to be careful because I can go back there. Um, he's going through a process now with his aging parents, um, something that I've gone through. But he's learning his lesson, and he needs to learn it in his time. And I can I can react to it. Um, I can react to it and try to, to think that because I have gone through a similar experience that I can tell him things and tell him what to do. And, and he doesn't need me to, to be here to tell him what to do. He needs me, I think, um, the same way I need him, is to be there being supportive, caring, loving. And today I just ask him, is there anything I can do for you? Um, you know, what can, I, what can I do for you to make it easier? Um, do you want, when he starts to tell me things, um, do you want me just to listen or, or do you want some feedback from me? And most of the time, he just wants me to listen. He doesn't want any feedback from me. And so it has changed. The other thing that I recall was there was a point where I was trying to get together, get the family together to go on a vacation that was part, you know, a professional conference, and then there was fun planned. And it was, um, it was 1999. It was, you know, when I was in the depths of my disease, and nobody wanted to come you know, my young sons, it was being outdoor, canoeing, and the, playing in the river, all kinds of fun stuff, and that was right up their alley. Nobody wanted to come. And <clears throat> today I am grateful that, you know, my husband and I plan vacations together now. We want to do things together. He wants to be with me now, and I want to be with him. And, you know, because of this program, and I, I have learned that, you know, to look at my character defects, see how... I have caused people harm and, and, and to apologize to him. And I, when I do my daily inventory, you know, I, I, you know frequently, I, frequently I'm thinking of myself. Frequently I, um, I need to stop and pause and, and see how, you know, I'm not thinking of him and how can, I, how can I be of service to him. And when his dad was in the hospital, you know, I, I was doing the things that he would normally do. He's retired and I... I choose to be employed, and, you know, the trash can was sitting out, and, you know, I brought the trash can. I mean, they're simple things, you know, things that he wants to do because it makes him feel good about himself. But, you know, he he was he might be home late, you know. Um, I would not have thought to have done those things before. There was such a division of chores. You know, that's his job. You know, I'm not going to do more than my fair share. And so um, how how can I be of service to my husband today? Um, it it's only by the grace of God that you know that we are um, blessed to have the relationship that we have today, and um, I daily need to see um, how I start thinking of myself instead of others, and I need to constantly remind myself that today I how can I be of service? You know how can I be of service to Thee? And someone told me that in the Big Book when it says how can I be of service to Thee? Thee could be my spouse my children, my coworkers, um, the person that I open the door for who's maybe walking with a walker. Um, so anyway, our, our relationship has healed as uh, uh, going through the process and working these steps. And for me to, by me, I believe, continuing to enlarge my spiritual life, I'll need to always do that, and I am forever grateful. Um, because there was divorce on the horizon, you can only imagine, 
um, I don't know why I don't know why he stayed with me, but I'm I'm grateful that he did. Thank you. Thank you, Allison, for the question, and thank you, Michelle, for sharing more of the results of recovery, such as a restored marriage. Any other questions this morning for our speaker, Michelle? Going once. Twice. And three times. Okay. You got right in (laughs) under the wire. Go right ahead. (laughs) No, I was pressing enough. Playing with number one. I uh, thank you, Leah. Uh, thank you, Michelle, so much for your share, uh, Rita from Connecticut. Uh, I'd like to ask you, you've been recovered um, for two years. May I ask, is that when you originally came into OA, or when did you physically uh, come into the program? Um, I physically came back in July of 2005. I did a short stint, <laughs> if I would call it, from 96 to 97. Um, but I'm grateful for that because I knew where to come. I, I, I really knew where to come back to. So July of 2005, and when we qualify in our home group, you know, I say that I came in in July of 2005 and um, became abstinent October 20, 2010, by the grace of God. Thank you so much for your sharing. Thank you for being here. Thank, thank you, Rita. And, again, thank you, Michelle, to you for sharing the story of your transformation and your personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. We appreciate your time and energy this morning and sharing your experience. And I will close the meeting with the way A Vision for You closes its meetings, and that's from page 164 in the big book. And it goes as follows. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.